When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast featuring feminist thriller writers in conversation about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and I'm here with Kristen LaBianca. Hello. And our guest today really needs no introduction if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, but I will do one anyway. Um, Megan Abbott is the Edgar Award-winning author of the novels Give Me Your Hand, You Will Know Me, The Fever, Dare Me, and many more. Her latest novel, The Turnout, is a Read with Jenna Today Show book club pick, and it is also one of the best books I have ever read. Um, welcome, <laughs> Megan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a great intro. Thank you. I so appreciate it. <laughs> we were completely obsessed with The Turnout. We could not put it yes. down. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yay. And I have to say, like speaking for both of us and pretty much everyone else I know who's a thriller writer, like when we heard that you were writing a book about ballet, like I just lost my damn mind. <laughs> I was yeah. like, what could be better than a Megan Abbott book about ballet? So could you talk a little bit about like the genesis of this idea? Yeah, I, I, I guess we all have this, this fascination with ballet, many of us. Uh, it does seem to be very, very common um, in, in its light side and its dark side. And uh, um, I always wanted to do something set in it, but I didn't really know what the story would be. And I wanted to avoid various cliches and, and I didn't want to cover ground that had been trod with, with black swan or red shoes or elsewhere. But eventually sort of the story I found, I found, you know, the sort of situation I was interested in, which um which was really about um really about the way that women judge other other women um for their romantic or sexual choices um which is really coming off the do you remember that dirty john podcast from a few years back um, yes i wanted to ask you about this because i attended some of your events last week with Gillian Flynn and Laura Littman and you brought this up and I thought it was so so fascinating so yeah please yeah it was you know I I love true crime so of course I love Dirty John I was really surprised at the because it you know it's always when something becomes wildly popular that you you know people who don't necessarily tend to read true crime or all kinds of people are coming upon it but there was a a real intensity of feeling in these comment sections uh, a lot of anger and then it's a podcast about a serial press 
predator. It was like a really, a really awful man and abusive and, and murderous. And, but it seemed like um, all the comments were really um, very angry at the women who had fallen for him. And that's really where all the ire was directed. And it seemed so strange to me and started to think about what it was really about. And, and, you know, it seemed like some way of saying, you know, this would, this, this would never happen to me because you are, you didn't see these signs, but I would, you're, you're dumb and I'm smarter, which, you know, was sort of a fascinating dynamic to me. So I wanted, I was thinking of a situation where, where a sister could be judging another sister that way and then i thought oh maybe they run a ballet school (laughs) (laughs) perfect um so the two sisters in the books we have dara who is sort of the like the alpha sister i would say and um then marie who is the more like she's the one who's being kind of caught up with this this con man this contractor who who comes in and we can talk more about him later but um i know when i was reading it i related much more strongly to to Dara I like immediately connected with her and kind of because she's so judgmental almost I really related to that I don't know Kristen if you (laughs) felt the same way (laughs) no I totally did yeah that that really like harsh initial impulse to to judge someone I feel like was very very relatable and I mean I would hope that I would have more empathy than that but I mean probably not to be honest (laughs) Do you have one that you relate more to, Megan? I know you like chose to tell it mostly through Dara's voice, even though it's third person. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have both Dara and Marie. I, mean, I think we all do, but it's um, you know, sometimes the Dara is uh, easier to access. So. <laughs> <laughs> she was surprisingly easy. To, in fact, I, you know, my agent's usually my first reader, and he's really he was an editor first, and he's a sort of really good reader. And one of his first comments was, "Dara is so mean. Why is she so mean?" And I'm like, "Wait, is she mean? Um, she doesn't seem mean to me. She's just someone who." Um, is you know she's very disciplined and very controlled and has a very strong sense of how things should be and those characters are really interesting to write because you wonder where their cracks are um because they're certainly there i mean the reason you develop that level of control is to cover up the cracks so so it really it was she was so fascinating to write because i really didn't know what her secrets were um they sort of revealed themselves to me through her and seeing it through her eyes, it's almost hard to understand why Marie is so entranced with this contractor that she falls into the affair with. But you wonder, like, you know, if we were seeing it from Marie's point of view, we would see all the things that she finds attractive about him. But Dara is so repulsed by him. We're just seeing it through her eyes. So yeah. I found that fascinating, especially that that first sex scene. I don't want to give anything away, but it was so viscerally written. It was yes. just like... <laughs> That is quite a sex scene. Well, it is, yeah, point of view is really important. And I really did kind of want it to be, I always loved books like that, even as a kid where you keep changing how you feel about the characters um, as the sort of different facets of them emerge, sort of, um, because we're all so messy and complicated, as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I really wanted that to be a feature of it where it's, you know, we can call it unreliable narrator, but really we're all, unreliable narrators of our own experience and really it's, it's just you know she her 
her history with Marie and her history with her family and with everything. It so infuses the way she sees this man. So I, I really wanted that in there and, um, and her, for her to give us this view of this. Um, and then we would have to later figure out um, how much of that is Dara and how much of that is, is really Derek and Marie. I love how there's kind of this element of voyeurism throughout, like Dara is perceiving Marie's reactions to Derek sort of, she's like catching glimpses of it uh, and building her own, you know, opinions that way. But at the same time, Dara feels like Derek is watching her or watching all of them. Uh, and then you kind of have that paired with the whole idea of a ballet school where it's all about watching someone. Uh, I just think that's really a really fascinating atmosphere in which to set a thriller. Yeah, it was so interested in, you know, the ballet dancers, their whole life is having mirrors all around them. So they have a really different relationship to to seeing than we do because of that. And they're so used to looking and being looked at um, and displaying themselves. So it sort of, you know, what, what sort of those boundaries are for these dancers and certainly for Dara and Marie seemed really interesting. Um, um, what it would, because especially because because she and her sister and her husband, their lives are so enmeshed. They're so mm-hmm. tightly knotted and outsiders, you know, really feel like outsiders. And, and that's why someone like Derek can really feel like a threat because their world is so small. Mm-hmm. And being a, a ballet dancer, it seems like the kind of thing where it's never just your profession or like a hobby. It is your identity. <laughs> like that's who they are completely. It's not like, you know, they're, ballerinas and then they just go home and let their hair down and are totally relaxed it's like you just I'm picturing them the whole book just like walking with the really straight back and very controlled and like probably the way they brush their teeth the way they lie down in bed like everything's super controlled so that makes a very fascinating extreme kind of character yeah, and it's always like you know, whenever I will be by Lincoln Center and see ballet dancers in the wild, and they how they look, they do look different. They have that quality of feeling like a, a um, something apart from us, um, you know, with those long necks and the, uh, the their feet turned out, and all of that is so um, it marks them. I know one thing we're both so fascinated by in in your writing in general is how you create this atmosphere of extreme just dread and tension. <laughs> like it almost it's it's like oppressive almost when you're reading your books. It's it's incredible and it's with this one especially like the real action, you know, comes later in the story. Like a lot of it in the beginning is just these conversations or people looking at each other from across the room or through the doorway or, or whatever. Like there's not a lot of action on the page, but it feels so intense and, and emotional. And I just, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> it is such an interesting, you know, it's sort of giving that room for the reader to fill in. You have to create those spaces for the reader to fill in with their own, their own stuff, their own <laughs> worries and fears. Mm-hmm. And it's a, for, it's a lot about creating those spaces to come into the story for the reader to come in. Um, suppose it's sort of like, oh, is, I love movies and I, I love Hitchcock. And he, and he would always talk about that, about like opening these doors for the viewers and they'll fill it in with their own anxieties and obsessions but you have to open those doors so you have to create that space um and so it's a lot about it's a lot in the lot about revision about cutting back holding back being patient um and having trust in, in in the reader to sort of come along um 
I think that, and it helps when you're in a kind of rarefied environment to create that atmosphere because it already feels like um, nothing normal can go on here. You know, this is not a place <laughs> where you're going to kick back and open a bag of Doritos. You know, it's just <laughs> not that kind of world. I read um, a piece that you had written in the cut recently about like the perfectionism of of ballet and just perfectionism in general, uh, and I think that's really also an interesting place to start with with thrillers because you know with characters who are so like high strung or tightly wound or you know whatever kind of adjective you want to use these points of tension like create all kinds of interesting opportunities for storytelling and conflict and um i just like i love that about about your books that you have you know these women who are in like very high pressure situations uh sort of you know them being high strung is just like that's how they are and then something happens and it kicks it up a notch. Uh, what do you think it is about like that intensity, intensification of a situation that really makes um, good storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I, I always hope it's good, but what it really is is how I experience the world. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is how I feel all the time. It's so funny. Um, sort of like you never realize we all are so specific and you never really realize it until other people say, wait, this doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> like, um, sort of an anxious person by nature and a sort of obsessive person and, um, and certainly struggle with my own perfectionism. So it's really easy for me to enter a place of being tightly wound. Um, it's much harder. I think it would be really hard for me to write like a hangout book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's just not my, it's not my jam. Um, and it's, um, so it does, it does come natural to me. And then, and then, yeah, it's really a matter of just what you said. It, you know, when you're writing a crime novel, it's wired in that things are going to be pushed even further. So you've got a pressure cooker in a very hot overheated kitchen. <laughs> so <laughs> you're bound to explode. I'm just realizing, is this why we all write thrillers and crime novels because we're all like anxious we're all, messes. All really anxious i think so honestly <laughs> well then the pandemic should have made it easier because we're more anxious now but it has not made it easier what is going no. on <laughs> not fair i mean they do say i mean it's sort of uh, the thing that thriller and crime writers tend to be the nicest people in some ways we get a lot of it's very and much an exorcism maybe sort of getting all that out on the page so there's that at least i mean i don't think the last year and a half there's any exorcism on enough but no. um, <laughs> you know, hopefully that will always be this way yeah I read that piece in the cut as well and I really loved how you talked about um women having to be perfect but not seem like they're trying uh which is something we talk a lot about on this show in I mean basically the conceit of the show is we talk about unlikable female characters which we have found to mean over the what we've been doing this for like two years Kristen it's basically any woman who doesn't fit into this like very narrow line of like acceptable behavior she's either like too much or not enough or she's trying too hard or not trying hard enough or, or whatever it is so I thought that was really an interesting point to make that and to tie it to ballet where it's supposed to look so effortless but there's so so much work like constant work and effort behind it yeah I mean that kind of figured that out as I wrote it I really I mean I never really write about myself and they had wanted me to talk about really why I personally wanted to write a book about ballet and it was really the act of writing it that made me figure out 
what because I don't have any connection in that I was ever good at ballet or dance or anything to do with moving my body in space and time so it was was just not that and so like what was it and it was really one of those where through the writing I I was trying thinking of like what rang so true about reading all these ballet memoirs and doing all the research and that was the thing that I kept connecting to Um, it's that sort of double bind of needing to be flawless feeling like you need to be flawless but also um making it look so easy which then of course as we all know means you know more more stuff gets dumped on you uh, often in life um um because of that and um and the sort of unfairness of it all but how much we're in part doing it to ourselves and enforcing it like as women uh, for other women i mean i think yeah. like- that's not just a performance for men. I, in fact, I don't think men even notice as much as other women do that, like per, that performance of perfectionism yeah. and everything. Um, uh, we were both at, there's a BoucherCon panel, I guess it was 2019. That's the last time we <laughs> successfully had a BoucherCon, right? Um, that you were on talking about unlikable female characters. And you said something about that you, like that women tend to criticize other women for being unlikable because it's like we can't show everyone what we're really like we're like breaking the code by showing how awful women can be (laughs) sort of like cracking that that image I thought that was a really great point yeah I I always think about that I'm a real fan of the real housewives of New York and uh the really hills and Potomac and I've always I've had so many women say to me you know how could you watch that it makes us look so bad like um it's it's such an interesting response and I and I get it but but um, I don't know. I think that there's, I think the more we let things be messy and mm-hmm. uh, uh, for complication, you know, the, the mission of your show, you know, is, is um, it, we can sort of take that, that away. And um, I mean, I don't need to, we don't need to create more freedom for real housewives, but <laughs> <laughs> we're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're doing all right. But I just think it helps us all to, um, uh, I think it, to to sort of be frank about these things and to to be open and to show our so show our imperfections and and not staged imperfections but real ones. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's something we celebrate a lot on this show. Just women being messy, women being assholes, women being <laughs> judgmental. I mean, all of those all of those things. Um, but I know something we've talked about before that we struggle with as writers and then in, in reading books as well is like, you want to create a lot of conflict, especially if you're writing a crime novel and it's much more interesting, we think to have conflict between women, right? Kristen. Yes, for sure. But then you don't want to lean into these stereotypes of like catty behavior, like girls fighting girls, whatever. So, I mean, you do that so well in your books, Megan, where you have this authentic character driven conflict between women, whether it's Beth and Addie and Jeremy or Kit and Diane and um, give me your hand. And it never goes into that mean girl kind of stereotype. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about your, your approach to creating that sort of girl on girl conflict, if you will. Yeah, it is. I'm glad it feels that because that's just the thing. I never want to indulge in that. And that, you know, I do think it's so much about tone and how you're presenting it. And, you know, there's just this sort of, 
it's really become sort of a kitsch version of it now that um, mean girls and, and bullying and um, it really, and you know, the old one cat fights, it's also, um, it's also diminishing of women and girls and, and their complexities. And um, it's sort of, you know, it's, I, I think it's sort of, if, if, the, if your spirit is right in doing it, it will come through. It's the only thing I can say about it because um, it just has to be earned and it has to be for the right reasons and and when there's a threat there has to be a real threat and there has to be consequences too so that that all seems really important it's sort of like you know if if you've ever seen a physical fight in person you know how scary it is and and how real it is and that you know it makes you never again want to want to do the cheap version of this yeah i think um it's a really good point that you have to earn it with that kind of conflict because you know Dara is not judgmental of Marie just because she's a judgmental bitch. Like she knows her sister and that's mm-hmm. part of why she has that reaction. She's like, Oh, here goes Marie again, you know, falling apart over this thing. Like she, her, her reaction is really based on a deep understanding and like their relationship being, you know, they really understand each other. Right. And they're, you know, and ultimately Dara's own insecurities um, and fears too at play. And those are the sort of the layers that you want to sort of be able to have the reader be able to unpeel that first it feels like this and then it feels like, you know, then it feels like, Oh, I get it. You know? And then, and then later you're thinking, Oh, now I see why, why Dara is so hard on her. And, and, you know, we all play roles in families and you get really trapped in your role and it's really hard to break out of it. You know how, you know, you can be anything else in the real world out there. Uh, but you know, if you are the considered the brat or the bossy one in your family <laughs> or this or that, like you can't escape it. Um, so, you know, since their whole worlds have been with with each other, um, they they are doubly trapped. Yeah, I think that's so true. Like, because whenever you go home for Christmas or something, I think we all just revert to our worst yeah. <laughs> adolescent yeah. selves. And then they've never left. Like, they live in the same house that they grew up in, where a lot of crazy things went down that we won't spoil. Um, so they're just trapped in those in those roles from childhood and continue to act them out. Yeah. I did think it was interesting in this book because so often in your books, it is it's primarily conflict between women. And in this one, you've created this really interesting male villain, <laughs> very <laughs> memorable. Um, how did you design Derek? Because it seems like you just picked like everything that would bother Dara the most and like put it all into this man, which I love. <laughs> it, it, I mean, he came fully formed to me. That doesn't always happen, but I knew Derek. Really? Yeah, I just, uh, uh, and I really enjoyed writing him so much. I really got a kick out of him. Um, I, I, I had to actually scale back. There was too much Derek at one point, um, but I, you know, he's really the opposite of the most of the characters I write. He, um, you know, someone had said at one point, "Oh, your your characters are also beautiful always. They're always, uh, um, or the you know." And I wanted him to be kind of like a really a regular guy, and how you know, and you know, kind of you know, with a middle-aged belly and he's sort of stomping and he's, his clothes aren't great and he's sort of, but that he owns it and that he would have this sort of swagger. It's always really, I'm always so fascinated by misplaced swagger. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have it, but do. And uh, I really, really, and then it was really interesting. I've always been interested in 
people who are sort of seductive or manipulative, how they're able to target the vulnerabilities in other people so quickly. And that dynamic um, is so compelling to me. So it was really fun to write him. And and the ish, those characters, they're always too, they're, you know, he's a blowhard or this or that, but there's also, they're always also good at certain truths that uh, um, other people can't and that, um, there is always a touch of uh, what's so painful about him is that he sees things that Dara, that the Dara knows are there when she would rather not anyone see. And so that I wanted to be part of him too, so that he would have these layers as well. He's very perceptive. Yeah, he's very perceptive and shrewd about, you know, identifying the the cracks within Dara that she either thinks no one can see or just hopes no one can see. Uh, and I think that's part of why she finds him so immediately unsettling is he can like get right at that part of her. Yeah, exactly. It's just sort of like he's sticking his thumb in, you know, and it was sort of the, it was just an accident, but it did turn out that, the, you know, he's a contractor at his renovation. So he's sort of, you know, he's sort of tearing apart their, their studio. Um, and it, and at the same time, sort of tearing down all these sort of walls and these castle walls that, that Dara has built around their lives. And, um, and what could be more threatening than that? I just went through a big home renovation and it was a little like too soon for me oh, to read no. this. I think. <laughs> it didn't go as badly as in the book, but it's always, it feels very like violating to have, even if they're doing a great job and they're nice and not like trying to manipulate you. Like this guy yeah, in the book is it's no. very violating to have someone in your house, like tearing out walls and just like all up in your space. Right. And you have to trust them implicitly uh, because none of us really know how that stuff works either. Unless you know something about construction yourself. It is like, like a great car mechanic or a great plumber or a great OBGYN for that matter. Like they're going in these vulnerable places and you have to trust that they know what they're doing. And, uh, um, and you do feel so vulnerable. So it's so like, if, if you find a good one, you should keep him forever. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's what's interesting about the physical stuff that you mentioned about him having like the middle-aged belly and everything where, you know, Dara and Marie and Charlie are so sculpted and have like worked really hard to perfect their bodies. And then he is just sort of like letting it all hang out there. But he has that swagger. He thinks he's attractive and has this like sexual power, which is something that like it seems like only men really <laughs> where they're just like, I don't care what I look like. I'm hot and just go like get all the women they want. It's kind of amazing how the patriarchy works. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it is, it is, I mean, you know, the straight women who respond to it, which I have not, I am not, a, have not been immune to that in my lifetime, but it, uh, <laughs> um, it, it's a, it is sort of, yeah, it's sort of uh, a powerful thing, how much confidence can matter in those situations. That's why I call them con cowardice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, well, I think we wanted to get into some questions about your writing process, because we have a lot of writers who listen to this show, writers and aspiring writers, and um, you're, of course, one of our favorite writers who we talk about all the time on the show. So um, what is your process like? It sounded like from some of the other interviews that I've I've seen of yours that you start with kind of a small piece, like a voice or an idea, and you kind of just like see what happens. Is that is that how you generally do it? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know any other way to do it. You know, you 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 know, it's sort of how do you create a novel? You know, it's <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyone finds out, please tell me. <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, it's sort of, you know, they always say, write what you know. But for me, it's sort of write what you're curious about. And so I'm always trying to go into a story or a world or a voice that that I that I, is not um, natural to me or familiar to me and figure it out. So sort of following what's exciting and keep going from there and what seems to be working. And it's a lot of trial and error. It would be great if it weren't, but I, I don't think there's really any other way. I mean, you could plot out a story for the novel. You could, you could create a plot, but it wouldn't have that life. It's sort of that spark that you need. Um, and that really, for me, only comes by by trial and error, and and listening to you know sort of intuition stuff like this. This seems this is exciting to me. I don't know why yet, but I'm gonna you know keep going here and just hoping. Um, but ultimately, if the, if I don't find a voice to tell it from, whether it's first person or second or third person or third person close, you know, I got, if I don't have that, I can't do it at all. So that sometimes it's like switching the POV around a bit too. So do you just write a ton then and, and have to pare it back a lot, it sounds like? Yeah, yeah. And I try, I'm, as the years go by, I try to do more thinking than writing, you know, mm-hmm. um, try to, you know, I think there's a there's a part of it in the, in the early days, especially where you feel like word count is all that matters. And it does matter a lot, but I also think a lot of stuff counts as writing, which is, you know, t- taking a walk and thinking about it, going to that matinee to clear your head and see something that sort of shakes, shakes the cobwebs loose and all these things that sort of help get you into that, that state you need to be. Um, feels really important to me. I love that because I tend to get really caught up in the word count. And um, if I'm just thinking, I'm like, oh, I'm wasting time. But it is sometimes in those moments where you step away from the desk. Like I had a great idea while doing the dishes last night. I had another one while I was at a movie last weekend. Like it just, you kind of have to get away from the screen sometimes. Always. I mean, it always comes like the minute you leave the computer. So it's sort of the more you know that, the the more you you force yourself to do it and you let your brain sort of roam a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's part of why the pandemic has just been so hard on writers because we don't have as many places to go to step away from the computer screen. I mean, it's getting a little better now, but for so much of last year, it's like, it was like me and my house and my computer screen. And that was, that was (laughs) it. There's not any new material coming in. And it felt very much like, wow, I have no ideas. No, it's it's really hard because you do need to see new and different things. They don't have to be beautiful things or exotic things, but you do need to see things and be right. other places. I think that and you need to have experiences that aren't are, are not just solitary. So uh, I do think it was definitely hard for me. I remember the minute things started to open up, you know, they opened MoMA here in New York, and um, and I remember the first time I went last fall when they reopened partially or whatever it was time time means nothing now but um (laughs) it was the most ecstatic experience i ever had in my life because i hadn't seen art in person and so i would just see it on screens and in so long that it was just so glorious and it was a great reminder of how important that is yeah, I miss live performance so much, like going to yeah. the theater, and it was great to read about ballet in your book. It made me miss it even more, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. no, me too. And I know that you are adapting, well, you adapted Dare Me, and you're going to be adapting the turnout yourself. Is that right? Yes, yes. Working on it now. Um, so it's a limited series. Um, Amazing. Okay. 
So how do you approach, is there like a different approach to writing for the screen? I ask selfishly because I'm doing this right now for one of my books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's wildly different. I mean, I don't think, I mean, it's really could hardly be more different, I think, because, you know, scripts are so much about structure and, and they're so... Um, they move, you know, you have so little room, things really got to move in a certain way. They have to, you know, and they're just sort of opposite of the intimacy of the novel. So, so much of it for me always is starting to imagine it visually and to use visual storytelling and to, um, and to really think about moments, think in terms of scenes rather than the way you would in a novel. Um, so it, it is so, it is so for me, it's really different. I think because I do tend to write really sort of, um, in, in, the, in the head, you know, really sort of interior books. It's particularly hard for me to break out of it. So I have to really come at it from a very different angle um, and, and takes takes take some time, take some figuring out. Yeah, you're putting so much trust in your collaborators and in the actors as well, because like in a book you can explain, I mean, you know, we don't want to... <laughs> Yeah. You're going to show, not tell, but you can kind of, you can show a lot more about who the character is and their worldview and you can get their thoughts and everything. And then when it's just a visual, you're, you're leaving that so much in someone else's hands and would worry about maybe the character being misunderstood or I don't know. It is a whole other puzzle. It is. And, and to get there, to get into production, it actually has to work on the page of the script. So you really have to make it come alive in some way in the script itself, or it will never, never reach that stage. So how do you, yeah how do you convey interior states in a script is is a real real trick and i always watching movies that returning to movies i love to sort of see how they did it to see how it works so that's always really helpful what are some that you think do it particularly well well, I mean, I would say pick whatever ones you love. I mean, I mean, one, I mean, I, but I tend to sort of go to like the sort of beloved screenwriters uh, or screen uh, writer directors. I mean, Billy Wilder is a favorite of mine, and all of his, uh, he's just such. He was a writer before he was a director, and um, and he's such a tight, great storyteller. His sort of ten rules for storytelling, which is always floating around the web, I share it every year on his birthday. Um, is just great and it's really so much about about working with the audience and holding things back from them and it's full of this great advice and I kind of love it and love him but I think whatever whatever movie or show that you love is the one that you know ones you want to keep returning to and sort of figure out how how they're put together I did want to say that um I think there are so many like visual elements just sort of built into the world of the turnout already that will make such a powerful piece on screen like so many details about their shoes and the the way that like they hammer their shoes and cutting the shoes with a razor blade I just feel like that's all so like visually poetic and it'll be really cool to to sort of see that come to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, it is sort of it is sort of one of the benefits of this is being a very visual art, um, as with with sports. So I think that will be so so much fun um, because I know I watch endless YouTube videos of dancers preparing their point shoes, and I was fascinated <laughs> by all of them. Uh, <laughs> it's surprisingly violent. Yes, <laughs> it, is. it is. It really is. Also, it was really interesting to me that um, like point shoes don't last very long I guess I never really thought about that um obviously I'm no ballerina but that's fascinating like (laughs) you would think like oh you know you you get a pair of shoes and you you use them for a while but it's like 
really not like that. No, they're destroyed. And it, and it's just, you, you know, you can go and look at these beautiful factories in France or Italy, these craftsmen making, making these beautiful shoes. And then the dancers sort of strip them down and bend them and twist them. And then they put them on and they dance and then, they, and then they're in shreds. So it, yeah. it's like really um, just like the, the briefest of all life cycles. They go out in a blaze of glory, though. And that sort of like fits with the ephemeral nature of all live performance, but certainly ballet. Mm-hmm. It's like you go out and do it and you are in terrible pain, I assume. I've never done it. <laughs> and then it's just, it's over, you know, it's there in the minds of the people who saw the performance, but that's it. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. It's, yeah, I miss it too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I could just see this book playing out on screen so clearly as I was reading it. I mean, just the mood of it and the the visual contrast between the characters, um, not just Derek and the and the sisters, but like the two sisters themselves. I, I just uh, I can't wait. Oh, great. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, super excited. I also I want to say one quick thing about um, the movie Black Swan, which obviously is a very different type of story. And like other than being in the ballet world, like I don't think there are a lot of um similarities I think they're very different stories of course um, but one thing that about that movie that I find so compelling is in the early in kind of the early parts where she's like she's rehearsing instead of having um, like a soundtrack or even just the music that she would be dancing to there's no sound all you can hear is like Natalie Portman's breathing and I feel like that is so like it creates such like a claustrophobic scary feeling even though like literally nothing has happened she's just dancing but just the fact that instead of there being you know this sweeping classical music behind her you can just hear like her very like anxious um like labored breath and I think that that is like a super interesting uh way to use the medium of of film to sort of get that across Absolutely. And I, I love Black Swan. And I, you know, I think a lot of movies with ballet sort of teeter into horror, you know, and, and, and I think it is because that you do are have this in, intensity and you have the body and the body, the toll on the body. And I, I kind of love how, how close it sort of um, can tilt into that. It's sort of built in. I mean, even the, the most beloved ballet movie of all the red shoes is, you know, really quite, um, it has quite a, a, a gory element to it. And it's sort of, you know, based on the red shoes, the very dark fairy tale about um, a young woman who's, who has to have her feet chopped off. So they'll, stop dancing so it's sort of I, I mean all that sort of built into it and so I think it would be you know I I know ballet dancers always hate black swan and they, <laughs> they complain about it and I get it you know we always hate to see our profession or our our, our sort of portrayed on film in any way but um or in, in fiction but um I do think there is a, a darkness that built into ballet that's that's part of its draw its sumptuousness the sacrifice that they go through and and I, and I love all that that anxious heavy breathing is basically me while I was reading the turnout <laughs> yes <laughs> same <laughs> There were just moments of that book that had me so tense. It was almost, it felt almost like horror, even though it, it's just the personal stakes between the characters. Like, uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but when the contractor enters like a space where he shouldn't be around the midpoint of the book, <laughs> that scene had me, I was like flipping pages like, oh my God, he's in there. What are they going to do? Yeah. Um, 
I'm curious. So, I mean, all of your books are, it's safe to say, like pretty dark. <laughs> you create these atmospheres of, of dread. Do you like take that on really as you're writing? I know you were saying that you kind of bring your own anxieties to it, but is it something that like affects you a lot and you feel like you have to shake it off? Do you kind of like live in that space while you're writing the book? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's always, I mean, I, it sort of connects to that, the earlier point about that sort of the, the, the anxiety. I mean, it doesn't feel that dark to, it doesn't feel darker to me than I don't know I, I I don't find the kind of darkness I write about scary I find it compelling I suppose mm-hmm. so um um I mean real life scares me a lot more <laughs> Um, but I will say too, there is, there always, it's always hard to write big scenes of violence. Um, not, not because I'm sort of wary of violence. I mean, I am in my personal life, but, uh, um, but it's really hard to make it work, to really sort of sell it. So I tend to take, it can be a week or more, two weeks, I'm still stuck in that one scene and it can feel very claustrophobic. Like I'm stuck in that space it's happening in. And, and that that can be hard and heavy. And it's always, I always try to remind myself that, you know, maybe I just don't look at that today, you know, and sort of take a break from it and come in with fresh eyes. So, so that I, do, I do have that and try to attend to that that fresh eyes can be really good for that. Yeah, I think Kristen and I have both been over the course of the pandemic trying to write projects that were like pretty dark and depressing. And sometimes it just feels like you're in a hole and you can't get out. That's how my experience anyway. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> it was on my mind as I was reading the turnout. I was like, how does she create this and still like is a functional human? Because <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> As functional humans as writers ever are. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Your early books were sort of in the noir tradition, historical mysteries set in that sort of like um, pulpy space. And then you had uh, with Dare Me really a distinct transition to contemporary stories in these very intense female environments. Um, like what kind of prompted you to to do that? Or is it really just about sort of chasing the types of stories that are capturing your own attention at any time? Yeah, it was really, I know people often point to it and I get it because it feels like this, this um, choice or this big decision or something, but it, it really was rather like, I didn't want to, I never want to do this too much that I want to always want to find something new and interesting and compelling. And, um, and I always hope that I could bring my noir with me and, mm-hmm. and, and it, and it seemed like, you know, it was an easy transition to, to teenagers because, you know, that's how life feels when you're a teenager. You do live in these sort of extremes of, of, of emotion and, and, um, you know, the, you have reason to be paranoid, uh, like like in noir, everyone is sort of paranoid, and there's all this sort of. So it was a natural transition, but then it just it just kept going. So once I realized that I could, I didn't have to stay in the historical period of noir to sort of write noir. Then it was a, a freedom um, to go other places, uh, which which was great. Though I, I definitely would love to write something set in the past again one day. Yeah, noir seems like something that can really be, it's kind of like gothic in that way. Like it can be in any story in any time. It can be in like a sci-fi story or something in medieval times or whatever, because it's like a mood. It's like Yeah, a, for sure. Feeling. <clears throat> yeah, it's like this mood of characters making like increasingly bad decisions with increasingly yes. higher stakes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Perfect 
perfectly put. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, the final question we ask everyone is, what are you working on now? If you can tell us, if it's top secret, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I'm working on a few few TV projects, um, uh, but uh, and starting a new novel. So, uh, which is too early to even know what it is. But, um, but yeah, the t- the, the turnout for TV, and then and then a few other ones. Um, we'll see where they go. Um, but hope to get. I'm really excited to get back into the novel and to get back into that that quiet space. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we're excited for whatever you put out next. We're all huge fans. And thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you guys so much. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe. And you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.